how do two kiteboarders even begin to think or have the audacity to think that you can pull this off? Naivete. <laughs> we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. All right, here we are. Episode six of Baby Got Backstory podcast. I can't even believe it. Uh, Before we get going, I just want to give a big, big thank you to you, the listeners. I am just can't tell you how much I enjoy doing this show and the support you've given me has really been remarkable and is keeping me going. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Remember, this is a two-way conversation. So I'd love to know what you think, what you want to hear, where I can improve, what what kind of guests you want. And you can always email us at podcast at wildstory.com. I will review all of those personally and respond. So please, go ahead and email me at podcast at wildstory.com. And you can always find me on all social media at, at Mark Gutman, M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N. And please, you know, one way that you can help uh, without even contributing a single cent or paying for anything is just please subscribe and leave a five-star review if you think it is worthy. That helps us with ratings and guests. And now on to the show. So memories are a weird thing. You know, why is it that some are so vivid and others not so much? I mean, I have one of our next guests right around the time we first met. I'm, I'm in the middle of the Pamlico Sound in Hatteras, North Carolina, and I'm skimming across the water attached to a giant kite. It's steel gray in the only way that the Carolinas can be, and it is sheeting down rain. I mean sheeting. So it's dumping rain. It's windy. I'm flying across the water into my back, keeping pace with me is this guy, my kiteboarding teacher, Ryan, on a wave runner, screaming as loud as he can so I could just hear his voice over the rain. Yeah, Gutman, yeah. And that is my first memory of today's guest, co-founder and CEO of Inboard Technology, Ryan Evans. When we first met in Hatteras, I was just starting to learn this new thing called kiteboarding, which has remained a passion of mine to this day. And I got lucky that my group lesson turned out to be a single, and I was assigned to the new kite coach, Ryan Evans. We instantly hit it off, and I realized really quick that he wasn't your typical kite bro. When I think of words to describe Ryan, words like dynamic, charismatic, intelligent, passionate, articulate, stage presence, storyteller, friend, cheerleader, athlete, leader, and futurist all come to mind. I once hired him to be a sales rep for one of my companies. I would often think if I only had 100 Ryan Evanses, you just knew he was destined for bigger things. When he and his partner were ready to launch as a company, they decided to do it through Kickstarter. And of course, I offered to help. But to be honest, I wasn't sure their new electric skateboard was going to fly. I had to ask, Ryan, are motors and the wheels really a big deal? Is it really the killer app? Ryan assured me it was, but I still wasn't so sure. Well, he was right. In a few days after launching, Inboard surpassed the goal of $200,000 and ultimately raised about half a million dollars. I became backer number one, 
and I still have the badged M1 electric skateboard to prove it. Since then, Ryan and his partner Theo have never looked back. Inboard now has offices in Santa Cruz and Los Angeles and has stepped up from the Kickstarter days to a successful Series A of $8 million. That's Texas T, black gold, real cash. Two action sports athletes who are looking to redefine electric vehicles and urban transportation. They've just released an electric scooter making electric transportation even more accessible. And this is their story. So Ryan, welcome to the show. Mark, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Help me understand Ryan Evans a little bit more. So as I understand it, you didn't grow up in San Francisco or Santa Cruz where you're based now. Where are you from? I grew up in Chicago. And, and tell me a little bit about that. What was your family like? Man, we were super Midwest, um, which is interesting. I grew up on the South side in the suburbs and uh, my parents, um, you know, uh, Irish Catholic raised South side of the, of the city. My mom had seven brothers and sisters, you know, tons of cousins. Um, my uh, older brother is uh, four years older than me. And my younger sister, Bridget's uh, five years younger than me. I think we had anything but kind of a traditional childhood. It was always kind of very tumultuous and lots of things going on and happenings. Uh, we kind of had a complex, you know, um, medical, you know, history in our family and, um, you know, lots of time spent in, you know, kind of hospitals and uh, working with the disabled and things like that. And so it was a very kind of interesting upbringing. We relied a lot on cousins and family members for kind of support as, you know, our family, you know, kind of juggled a lot of these, um, you know, challenges when we were younger. Uh, and it created a, a sense of really tight camaraderie and obviously love and family bonding, but at the same time, a lot of autonomy. You know, we each kind of worked independently and we loved each other and come together for dinners. But, you know, during the day, um, we're kind of like self, uh, self-reliant. Yeah. Tell me more, a little bit more about these um, hospitals and uh, challenges you had around that. Can you get a little more specific with that? Again, my brother's four years older than me and uh, you know, we grew up in, in the burbs and you know, when my younger sister Bridget was born, uh, she was born with um, kind of a complex uh, medical birth defect and spent a number of her years in, of her life in the hospital. It was definitely a big influence on the way that we were raised. We spent a lot of time you know, in the city of Chicago. You know, we lived in the, the south suburbs, but we were in the city you know, almost on a weekly basis. My parents would kind of trade off spending nights at the hospital with her. Um, and we've had, you know, a great family, uh, you know, that was really supportive, would, you know, kind of cook meals and bring them for me and my older brother. Uh, we had a great friend network, um, <laughs> staying out till, you know, until the, uh, the streetlights came on playing with friends. You know, we learned really kind of early on that you know, there's got to be a few things in your life that you're really passionate about and that you really believe in, you know, resolutely. And family was one of those. Also kind of defending your family was another, you know, growing up in the 90s with, um, you know, a sister, you know, the, the American with Disabilities Act was really kind of just coming uh, to, to life. Um, my parents and I got really involved in kind of disability rights and awareness. It was something that you just really kind of learned, you know, you go to a Toys R Us or something like that. And my sister was in a wheelchair. And, you know, there'd be, you know, five-year-old kids to, you know, 55-year-old men and women, you know, who would stare, you know, at my sister in the wheelchair. And, you know, if someone would have the audacity to come up and just point blankly ask, you know, what's wrong with you? And you know, we, we would, you know, our stock line was to respond like, what's wrong with you? Like have some, you know, uh, etiquette. Um, and, you know, we would do things where we'd like would form a, a human wall between my sister and like people who are gawking. Uh, and so you really kind of learned early on, like, this is something that we believe in, that we're passionate about. She's a, a, an amazing person and individual. Um, and she shouldn't be objectified in that way. And uh, you learn to defend that, you know, vehemently. And I think that that, you know, 
especially at a young age, really gave you the resolve and kind of the, the resoluteness to, to, to really be firm in those convictions. And it's something that I think has had a very positive influence, you know, on me as a leader kind of throughout my entire life, you know, whether it was in those situations or, you know, I remember I was a lifeguard in you know, high school and, uh, you know, I you know, knew CPR and it was funny because wherever there was like a medical emergency, like people gasp and, you know, some people pause and they, they kind of freeze. And, you know, we were always the ones kind of running over, assessing the situation, immediately, you know, diving into things. Um, and so we had a, you know, a kind of big proclivity to, um, you know, taking charge of situations. I remember one time specifically, my uh, brother, my mom, my sister and I were going to uh, the public pool in our hometown. Uh, there was a tornado right near where the public pool was. So literally, we're driving to the pool. It's you know seventy degrees sunny, and by the time we left our house and got you know eight minutes away to the pool, the sky had turned completely black, and a, a funnel cloud was coming down from the sky. And so we rushed uh, not to go to the pool, but to go to a mall. We're running inside. You couldn't shut the car doors. It was incredibly windy, and uh, we were able to get inside this this mall. And the security guard is, you know, people are frantic. And he's like, everybody, it's okay. Just go to the doorways. Like it's an earthquake or something. And my mom jumps in and she's like, no, 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 no. Those are glass doorways. She's like, everybody gets in the middle of the mall, right? And like, you know, here's my mom. Like she has no clout or authority whatsoever. But, you know, she was a, a woman who believed in her convictions and, you know, saw, you know, opportunities for leadership and she would just dive into them. Whether it was, you know, in a mall commanding a bunch of strangers to, to safety or, you know, it was testifying before the U.S. Senate uh, or Congress on, uh, you know, disability rights. Those, those were just things that were really kind of inculcated in us in a very early age. And I think ultimately, you know, my brother, my sister and I are all very, uh, I'd say entrepreneurial kind of leaders, self-starters, and it's had a pretty you know, profound and I'd say positive impact on you know, all of us. Yeah. And I can't help, and thank you for sharing that story. I, I can't help but think and start to look and connect the dots between this idea of your relationship with mobility, both with your sister, Bridget, and with just being a suburban kid transported into Chicago and, and being, you know, that being a part of your experience, as well as this idea of um, not, not being afraid of risk and leadership. Uh, and that story you shared about your mother was just uh, fantastic. And it really um, seems to connect the dots for where you're at today with inboard where you've you've got a passion for mobility but I mean this is not something that everyone is seeing readily right now there's a lot of risk in it and it's taking a lot of belief and we're certainly a lot further ahead than we were you know three four years ago but um, it, it's taking you know, people like inboard people like yourself to stand up and say this is where we believe the future of mobility to be uh, and as I look and, and I hear that story it just seems like you had a lot of things that really affected that worldview to where you're at today and how you're seeing the world there's these little things that you can do that can have a tremendous impact a profound impact on people's lives um, you know one specific example was you know once my sister got a service dog um, it was amazing the things that she could do and the increase in her freedom having a service dog. But I think even the, the most profound impact was, you know, you would go to public spaces and rather than people coming up and, you know, objectifying my sister, like I mentioned before, uh, you know, they would look at the service dog and instead of, you know, it being, you know, people asking her what's wrong with you, they'd be like, Hey, can I see your service dog? Um, and it, it, it turns something from a negative experience into, I would say a much more positive experience. And that's just a slight lens change through which you view things. Um, you know, giving people um, mobility, uh, while it sounds, you know, relatively simple, that freedom of mobility, especially on-demand mobility, 
it can have a transformative impact on the way that they plan their day or on their ability to uh, live a lifestyle um, and to be able to accomplish, you know, their goals and their dreams. And, you know, I saw that in the disability community. And the same things are being manifest today on this personal mobility space with, with our company um, is by you know, giving people the freedom and access to a very democratized, a very egalitarian you know, use case of, of a product that really gives you freedom. You know, for me as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as a technologist and a futurist, and I think for you know, many people, this is such a huge, tremendous opportunity for us to really reclaim you know, our public spaces and the way that we, we engage with one another in these public spaces. You know, if you're in an Uber or a Lyft, you're on your phone, you're in the backseat, maybe you're talking to the person, probably not. Um, you know, you're not talking to people outside. You're not noticing the little bookstore that, you know, has always been on the corner, but you've never, you know, taken the time to recognize. If you're on a bicycle and you're bike commuting, you do that. And if you stop at a stoplight, you talk to other people. And now if you're on a scooter or a skateboard, you have the ability to jump off and run into a coffee shop and meet meet somebody new who lived around the corner that you never met, or to um, you know, have a stop uh, a stoplight scooter chat, um, which we see happening all the time, where you know people are engaging with one another. And you know, you look at the way that our cities are built and designed today; it's around an appliance, like it's around the automobile, uh, and it's crazy. You know, you've got a room in your house dedicated to a washing machine, but like there's nobody else who's designing you know all this infrastructure around you know. Uh, an appliance, a utility device. And so we really say, let's take you know, the human back and put them at the center of it. And in the future, be able to have public spaces, streets, roadways, sidewalks um, that are intelligent, that you know, are smart, that really give homage and the right of way uh, and the precedent to the pedestrian, to people. And uh, I think that's incredibly exciting. Tell me about the day when you first saw this thing we now call inboard, you know, it looks looked a lot different then, but tell me about that. You know, Theo, my co-founder is a, a brilliant mechanical engineer um, who really has a, an eye for not only mechanical, but electrical and all these systems. And, you know, he and I both came from a very different background. He, he grew up in France. I grew up in America. Um, but we both had this passion for action sports. Um, he was a professional kiteboarder sponsored by actually the company that I was sponsored by. Uh, I was a sponsored kiteboarder in the mid-2000s and eventually um, became a sales rep for that company and then the president of that company. And Theo was one of our team riders in France. He was just one of those kids that, like, when I had a, ro a robot that would break when I was a kid, you know, I would open up the robot and I'd find like the electronics and I would, you know, break them and like throw the whole thing away. Theo would open up the robot, figure out how it worked, rebuild the robot, making it better, or integrating other robots into it. Like, he was always a creator, a tinkerer. He always wanted to find out how things worked. And so, you know, we hit it off really early on when he transferred from France to Santa Monica to go to school. And uh, he became kind of one of my athletes when I was the president of this, uh, this kiteboarding company. And so whenever I was in Los Angeles, you know, I would call Theo and we'd try and meet up to go kiteboarding or surfing. And uh, he was a very early influence on me on, you know, kind of teaching me and getting me into to drones. And so this is before, you know, the, the commercially available drones where you could go on eBay or Amazon and buy one. Uh, you had to order all your parts from like 20 different suppliers. And so Theo's teaching me how to like, you know, build a drone, use a soldering iron, you know, program it, do the telemetry, the calibration. Um, and you had to be really passionate to be able to, to make one of these things work. And then you would go outside after working on it for five hours, fly it for 15 minutes, crash it, and then have to rebuild the entire thing again. Theo 
again, being a kind of nonstop tinkerer and inventor, was taking drone motors and applying them towards you know electric skateboards with the motor kind of attached to the the skateboard truck, the axle, and he would attach the the motor to a belt and the belt to a gear, and the gear would turn the wheel, and it was this kind of complex drivetrain, and it was all these electronics kind of hanging off of the board. But the cool thing was wherever he would ride them, people would stop him and, and offer him cash on the spot to be able to buy it. So it was one of those things where you knew there was excitement there and you knew there's there's something. Theo being, you know, kind of a ceaseless inventor and somebody who always wanted to refine systems, um, he saw a lot of the challenges with the belt-driven systems, with the, the motors outside the wheels that would break, the belts that would break down, the gearing. And he spent a lot of time manifesting and simplifying that system into this really unique and encapsulated hub motor that we call the Manta Drive that got rid of all the wear and tear, all the parts that could break down, all the drag, and turned it into this amazing, beautiful system, this product that you know could now scale and ship globally because you didn't have to worry about you know uh, warranties and uh, you know breakdown. And if you did, it was a modular system that could easily be replaced. And he really thought about all the challenges and manifested all the solutions. Um, and so once he was able to do that, we realized, wow, now it's just about taking this drivetrain. And again, once you have a motor, motor controller, firmware, and a battery, whether you're making an electric car like a Tesla or an electric skateboard, an electric scooter, that's the same DNA. It's just about the size of the battery, the size of the motor, and things like that. How do two kiteboarders even begin to think or have the audacity to think that you can pull this off? Naivete. <laughs> we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. You're totally right. I mean, this is full stack systems engineering. I mean, this is not building a product, but an entire system, uh, an ecosystem of products. I mean, if you look at Apple, they don't make computers. They make systems. They make iTunes and Apple Music and Apple TV and the hardware and the backend software. And it's the entire ecosystem. That is an amazing and immense challenge. And we just didn't have the full kind of wherewithal, maybe Theo did, I certainly did not, of, uh, of the challenges of what it was going to be. In fact, one of the, uh, I was at a bar in uh, San Francisco trying to find and recruit a senior electrical engineer to help us build all of our hardware and our, our systems. And I was interviewing this guy and we we're in stealth mode and nobody knew what we were working on. I'm asking him all these questions that you know, would pertain to the product. And he stopped me and he said, if you guys are doing what I think you're doing, I'm so glad you're not from here. And I was like, why do you say that? And he's like, because you have no idea what you're in for. <laughs> and he, I, I think about that every couple of months. I'm like, yeah, he was, he was definitely right. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, you, you, you don't have any idea of how complex, how challenging it's going to be. Because if you did, most would never do it. Um, but you've got to have that drive and that passion. And that's why you can't fake it. Like any entrepreneur who's successful in building their business, and it, you had to believe in it. And there's no way that you could fake it or just want money to be able to go through the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and the challenges that you face. You really got to have a belief in not only um, you know, building a company, but really transforming something uh, in order to, to, to be able to go through it. And so you're right. Uh, building a motor, that's a challenge. Uh, manufacturing a motor in high volume, a bigger challenge. Working with the biggest contract manufacturers in the world, 
that's kind of the, the, the top of the leagues, you know, building a software team, a backend development team, um, you know, guys that not only work on mobile apps, but on the firmware, the thing that actually lives on the electronics and makes everything work. Um, batteries that, you know, can cause tremendous amount of damage if there's ever a, an issue, uh, but at the same time have the opportunity to be incredibly ruggedized and, and safe and certified so long as you get the best people in the world to work on it. And that was one of the reasons that, you know, I'm on the East Coast at the time managing this, this action sports company. Theo was going to school in Santa Monica. And we decided if we're going to start this, like we literally threw like a pin on the map of San Francisco. And uh, we just knew we needed really great engineers and really great leaders to help us manifest that to market. And we were able to get some of the top, you know, electrical you know, vehicle engineers in the world to, to you know, leave companies like Tesla or Zero Motorcycles and join us full time um, because they saw the opportunity and the vision for, for this market, which, you know, today people are like, yeah, this market's huge. But, you know, four years ago when it was a skateboard, you know, investors were like, what are you talking about? Like, you guys have delusions of grandeur. This is never going to happen. And, you know, here we are four years later and it's, you know, arguably the hottest space in technology today. Um, and, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the Washington Post are, you know, talking about how this is, you know, a transportation revolution. Well, yeah, we saw this coming. We saw the opportunity there. Um, but I think we had a gross at least I did. Theo probably didn't. He <laughs> knew what he was getting himself into. But I had a gross um, underappreciation for for the challenges and how hard it was. But uh, I think sometimes you need a bit of that naivety, uh, but a lot of drive and a lot of passion and a lot of um, resilience to be able to to manifest that vision. You know, take me back to those early days and that struggle because you know what was it like? What was your you know your daily routine like every day when you came into the office and and what, what was keeping you up at night? Yeah, I mean, I remember we started the company in April of 2014. You know, Theo and I wrote up a really simple operating agreement, shook hands. He was working out of Santa Monica. I was working on the East Coast. I'm still running, you know, this company. Um, but it was interesting. The CEO of the company I was working for understood how big this market was going to be. And being in distribution, he kind of was like, I could eventually perhaps distribute this product. And so he was very encouraging. Um, and I got to thank him and the team, you know, at that company, uh, Pure Action Sports, Best Kiteboarding. For, for being so you know, supportive of us in those early days. And he was really a great mentor to us. And he was like, you guys are going to need to raise a lot of money. And I'm like, great, how do I do that? Thinking that this is going to be easy. We moved to San Francisco in September of 2014. And then I, it's one of those things where you start telling people, oh, I'm doing this. And it kind of creates that social pressure. Like, oh, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to, I'm going to start a company. And now you're kind of committing to something. And uh, people are like, hey, how's that going? And you, you, know, you really got to keep moving forward. Um, we had our first uh, hire in November of 2014, uh, Paige Doolin, a brilliant industrial designer, human-centric design out of Michigan. And she had never been to California before. It was her first job out of college. She moved out sight unseen for you know, definitely not a living wage in San Francisco, but all we could afford to pay. And it was her, you know, Theo and I who you know, launched the company. Uh, we worked kind of diligently through the winter of 2014 and early 2015. And we launched on Kickstarter in March of 2015. And I remember the night before we launched, Theo and I were like, what happens if we don't raise any money? Like, what do we do? And then, you know, we were eating Thai food. Later, we're like, well, what happens if we kill it? We raise like too much money. <laughs> you know, we did a Kickstarter. Uh, after 30 days, we had raised just under half a million dollars. People were like, wow, you know, you guys really have something here. And we were really kind of off to the races. And so at that point, we had a very small office in Burlingame, California. It was a garage. Um, you had to walk into your desk every day and like wipe off the desk because there was like dust all over it. <laughs> um, it was definitely rough. Um, and it went from three of us to about 10 in about a month and a half. 
And so we had people moving all over from Boston and Miami and you know all different parts of America, giving up their you know lives and you know their jobs and moving you know their significant others. And you know, rent in San Francisco was expensive, and so we had uh, a really great and kind of key engineer um, for for us at that time who was living in Santa Cruz, and he was commuting up four days a week, kind of working one day remote. And you know, after about a month of that, he came in one day and was like, "Hey, Theo, can can I talk to you?" So Theo and I, you know, went in the back and chatted with him, and he was like, "Yeah, maybe I could do like you know, two days from home, three days away." And we're like, "Oh man, like we see where this is going." And then he just kind of innocuously said, well, "Or he could just move the company to Santa Cruz." And, uh, you know, we came down to Santa Cruz, I think that, that first weekend and our, our CFO at the time, a great guy named Chris Haley, um, he had never been to Santa Cruz before we walked on West cliff drive, which is this beautiful, iconic surf spot, you know, cliff face, you know, on the Pacific with redwoods lining it. And he was just like, oh yeah, we're moving here. And we're like, well, you know, let's, let's look at, you know, offices and see what we can find. And I think that was a Saturday or a Sunday. And on Monday, this beautiful house went on the market, uh, right on that, that same street, uh, which was a couple million dollar house. And, you know, Chris had done well on wall street and Monday it went on the market Wednesday, he bought a cash and we we're like, okay, we are moving to Santa Cruz. <laughs> so we got a little bit of an upgraded office. It went from a garage to an office. We actually had uh, carpet, which was a big improvement. Um, we kind of had ceiling tiles. They would leak um, all the time. Our conference room would go from, you know, negative 60 degrees to 120 degrees. There was nothing in the middle. You know, every time you're able to kind of get to one of those inflection points, you continue to be able to get great leaders. Some of uh, the top battery pack designers in the world joined us from from Zero Motorcycles, um, and uh, Zero has you know one of the most energy dense battery packs in the world. Um, and we knew we needed a lot of energy density for our product to work. And yes, yeah, slowly over time, you know, people, I think people with the vision saw the opportunity and, and joined the team. And, you know, we were able to iterate rather quickly and continually focus on, you know, building the core system. Uh, and as we were doing that, the market was really kind of gaining momentum and traction, albeit it was this kind of aspirational, cool product. You know, people would see somebody going by an electric skateboard and they say, oh, I wish I could do that. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't for them. Maybe they weren't, you know, physically active or had good balance. But it was always one of those things that, man, I wish I could. Kind of like Tesla with the Roadster. Like, man, that's really cool. I'm not going to spend $250,000 on it. Um, and so our goal was really, okay, well, we want to give this freedom to everybody. And that was always in our DNA. Well, in kind of building on that idea of challenges and, and struggles, what's your biggest struggle right now? I remember the, one of the main things is I had this consistent feeling of being overwhelmed. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm overwhelmed. And you can either look at that as like a why me kind of thing, or I learned to look at it through a lens of if you're overwhelmed, it's because it's something you haven't done before. And that means you're growing. And the number one thing that you're supposed to be doing is growing as an entrepreneur. And so you can look at these as challenges or as opportunities to grow. And then I really just started to embracing them. And you've got to learn that, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a leader, it's not about getting rid of the stress. It's not about getting rid of the challenges, but it's about how do you handle these challenges? How do you embrace them? Uh, and how do you use this as, you know, kind of fuel and energy to continue to drive the business forward? And um, it's, it's a critical shift in kind of consciousness and, and the way that you perceive your role in the market. But I think it's imperative uh, to your success. All right. So Ryan, uh, you know, you talk about the challenges and the struggles you had back then, but what, what are you, what's your biggest struggle right now? I remember, you know, we were pitching all these VCs, all these angel investors. And uh, I remember one VC that was interested had me talk to um, one of their portfolio companies and their portfolio companies working on this really interesting B2B hardware product, but they hadn't shipped it. They were barely in beta testing. Um, you know, they were having some issues, but they'd raised like $25 million. And, uh, 
you know, he had this great board and you know this great product and he's sitting there giving me feedback and he's like, I don't understand, Ryan, you guys are shipping, you're in volume, you're in all these things. Like, why are you guys having, you know, the challenges raising money? And I was like, dude, it's a skateboard on the conference room table, bro. <laughs> like, you know, trying to get, you know, people who, you know, want to be as safe as possible. And, you know, you got this product and you're telling them about how there's going to be this market. It was, it was a leap of faith at the time. And I remember one of our, um, you know, kind of key investors and advisors is a, a guy named Toby Corey. Uh, Toby was the president of Solar City and then Tesla Power. Um, but prior to that, he was the founder of US Web which in 1994 was going around franchising web development you know, to web developers all over America. And they were designing websites for, for local companies. And uh, eventually, the you know, US Web IPO'd for, I think it was $4.5 billion. But you know, Toby's telling me, he's like, Ryan, in 1994, I was going to VCs and I was telling them about our company. And their response was, why would a company ever need a website? And he's like, you're going to look back at this one day and laugh. And people will not believe you that people challenged you on, on this market thesis. And so that was a, a struggle you know, for the last couple of years. And now we're kind of in this completely other phase where everybody in the world, whether you're a transportation provider, one of the top OEMs in the world, car manufacturers to a VC, you know, everybody wants to know what we're working on and what we're doing. We're uniquely positioned because we have this vision for the market and hardware is hard and it takes a long time to develop. And um, you know, we're very fortunate to kind of be in the position that we're in. And now everybody wants to hear what we're working on. And it's like, well, are you really seriously interested, you know, in what we're working on? Um, or do you want to invest, um, or do you just want to hear, you know, about the market? And so, you know, now the market's kind of the this is the shiny object, the shiny toy, and everybody wants to, you know, see or kind of have a piece of it. And there's no shortage of people telling you, oh, you should do this, or you could go into this market. And so, I think for us right now, we've got an incredible team. Uh, you know, we've proven that we can ship, you know, thousands and thousands of products all over the world with global distribution and, you know, the full supply chain and ruggedization. And this market is moving so quickly that if you know we don't paddle right now we're going to miss the wave can you just let us know a little bit what does inboard look like today from a from a company size and structure and then what's the future look like for ryan evans and inboard you know now today uh i i think we're about 35 people um We've got offices in Santa Cruz, California, which is our HQ, and we do all of our kind of core electrical uh, and engineering out of here, as well as operations, finance, and kind of leadership. Uh, we have a center of excellence in Santa Barbara, California, where we do a lot of our mechanical and industrial design, and one center of excellence in Los Angeles, which is where we do a lot of marketing and kind of brand manifest. I think very similar to a company like Dyson. You know, they had great design, great engineering, but they were able to consistently go into new verticals and disrupt them by having a product that worked better and a design that was beautiful. You know, you look at vacuum cleaners and it's the most unsexy utility product in the world. Like I remember vacuum cleaners in the 1990s were sold by this old guy who used to run all the hotels, Oric. Remember the Oric XL vacuum cleaner? And he was like, I'm in a thousand hotels. And that was the USP. And, you know, Dyson came in and said, you know what, I'm going to do a product that's better. It's going to be better from an engineering perspective. It's going to be beautiful from a design perspective. And now you go into an airport and you wash your hands and there's a Dyson hand dryer there built into the sink. And he's got air purifiers and he's got, uh, you know, hair dryers. And he was always able to go into these different verticals with beautiful design and amazing engineering and disrupt them. And we've done that with one product. And now we're moving into you know, really manifesting our vision for creating an entire ecosystem of products. So we have the M1, which is our kind of flagship electric skateboard. Um, we always love the electric skateboard. We think it's a great product, a great category. It really is fun and enthusiastic. But we also realize we've got to broaden that. 
um, both in terms of price points. You know, you need price points that are both lower to, to meet, you know, kind of your high school and college age kids and also more premium, more performance oriented. And then, you know, kind of tangential to that, making products that are easier to use and also safer. And that's really one of our core focuses is how can you continue to make these products safer and easier to use? And if you do that, you continue to expand the amount of people that you're able to touch. And you create value in this world by improving the lives of the people around you. And so moving into two-wheel scooters and you know, three-wheel designs and you know, form factors that haven't even been created yet, that's where our focus is. And that's where we're pushing things in the future. Yeah, we're incredibly excited to launch our next entire product ecosystem. Yeah, and so can you clarify what that product and ecosystem is? Um, yeah, so we're getting ready to launch kind of our first scooter in the space uh, that really kind of uses the core technology that we've built around our motor, our drivetrain. And one of the most important ones is our swappable battery technology. So uh, in our electric skateboard, it has a battery that's um, you know, certified so that you can travel with it. In airlines, you know, we spent probably around $100,000 on certification for the product um, so that we'd never have any battery issues or fires. Uh, this is something that you know, some third parties weren't doing. Like when there was the hoverboard craze, people were just wanting to make things in the highest volume that was possible. And that's why we had these things catching on fire and you know, creating a lot of challenges. Uh, we believe in building the best, safest product on the market. And so um, that was a leadership position we took and cemented with the M1, our electric skateboard. But we realized that when you have a swappable battery, um, you don't have to wait for the product to charge. So if I ride my electric skateboard seven miles, I don't have to charge it for an hour and a half. I can just swap out one battery and drop another one in about 10 seconds, something that no one in the industry has been able to do to this date because it's incredibly challenging. Um, and so, you know, if you're riding to work, we want you to be able to get to work, go out, see a friend, um, maybe, you know, run to a restaurant and grab dinner and not have to constantly be worrying about range anxiety. You know, that's one of the biggest challenges with, um, uh, you know, electric vehicles is, well, how far can I go? And so having that swappable battery gives you that freedom. And so our next products will continue to build on that ecosystem. Uh, it's an electric scooter with a swappable battery built into it. Uh, giving you a 15 mile range on one battery. So if you have two batteries, you can go 30 miles. Uh, not only that, but um, you know, really building a best in class product from a safety and a performance perspective. And then we realize that other challenges for uh, consumers are not only range anxiety, but theft anxiety. You know, what happens if the product gets stolen? Um, you know, uh, can I lock it remotely? Can I have an alarm go off? Can I track it with GPS? And doing all these kind of higher value add uh, systems that nobody else in the market is even thinking about doing. And so we really want to put the rider, you know, we don't call them consumers, we call them riders because that's what they are. Um, they're friends. They're you know uh, people that you see. You high five when you're you know going to the office. Um, they're riders who are riding with you, and we want to give the power and that comfort and ease of use to them. And we see a vision where you're able to ride the M1. I'm sorry, the inboard scooter uh, to the office. Uh, say you want to stop and you want to grab a coffee. Well, you know if you got to fold the scooter, bring it indoors, carry it with you, it's kind of cumbersome. Um, we believe that you know you should be able to jump off your scooter. Leave it, you know, leaning against the wall of the, the Starbucks on the outside, be able to go in, stand in line, have your scooter be completely locked. Um, if anybody touches it, be able to get a Bluetooth notification that says, hey, you know what, you got to check on your scooter. Or if somebody moved it, you can immediately track it with GPS, but be able to go into a Starbucks, grab that coffee, walk out and not have any fear that, you know, your vehicle is going to be gone and not have to lug it around with you. And these little things have a tremendous impact on, on your life. You know, if it's Thursday night, Mark, and we, you know, both go to the same office and, you know, there's a group of people who are going out for happy hour and you guys are all jumping in an Uber. Well, if I've got an electric bike, you know, that's a, that's a liability. I can't fit that in the car. 
But if you've got an electric scooter, I can jump right in the car with you guys. I just throw it in the back of the Prius. Uh, when we get to the bar, I can coat check my scooter. Hey, I just want to drop this right here. Uh, if anybody touches it, I get a notification. And so all of a sudden, the product really facilitates your life. You don't have to change the way that you're living to adopt this product. And that was the problem with Segway. It was a great technology, but you couldn't fit in an elevator. You couldn't throw in an Uber or a Prius. Um, you, know, you couldn't you know, uh, park it outside without the thing getting stolen. They were like $12,000. Uh, and so it was a technology asking society to change for it. We believe in creating technologies that allow you to better live your life, that really kind of take that thought and that anxiety away and really empower you. And I think that that's a completely different lens through which we perceive not only the product, but really the, the brand and the world. So Ryan, this, this idea, and I'm really drawn to this idea of how you've infused the, the fundamental concept of freedom, right? And how you view life, how you live your life into your, into your business and into your product. And you seem very confident right now. I mean, was this always the case? <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe always growing up, I was a bit uh, overconfident. Um, yeah, I just always been one to jump into things like literally whether it was cliff diving and I would jump off cliffs and, um, you know, or action sports. Um, I always just kind of had that thirst for, you know, kind of living life to the fullest. Um, I remember I, I was living in Chicago when I was going to, to university. And uh, I'd studied abroad for a period in New Zealand. And, you know, I came back and, you know, your friends are like, oh, what do you want to do Saturday night? I'm like, let's go to the beach. Let's have a big bonfire. And they're like, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch UFC. And I was like, guys, come on. Like, let's live life. Let's really engage in it. And um, I've always been one. There's these little things that you can look back on in your life and you can kind of reflect. Um, and you can see kind of the small little glimmers of like, the person that you are today. And I was always the person organizing events, getting friends together, not only my friends, but like groups of friends and, and, and being the person who kind of pulled people together. Um, whether it was going on trips or, you know, when I was in university, I, I could begin a disc golf, frisbee golf. And uh, we had no disc golf courses anywhere near us. And so we were driving two, three hours to go to these disc golf courses. Um, you know, I set out to design, fundraise and build not only a nine hole disc golf course on campus, but an 18 hole disc golf course, you know, off campus. And we started a disc golf club and then we started the intercollegiate disc golf uh, association. And it was a collective of different, you know, schools across the Midwest from U of I to, you know, University of Tennessee and, um, you know, all these, it, it, it was just the thirst to create, you know, a great experience. And so, um, yeah, and every kind of thing that I ever did, it was always about, you know, how do you create community? How do you inspire people? How do you, um, uh, you know, have fun. And, you know, I'm very fortunate now that I was able to marry the thing that I was really passionate about, which was, you know, action sports, uh, and also technology, and, and kind of marry those together into a company that, you know, I'm incredibly passionate about, and that we've been able to build a team of people who are also incredibly passionate about as well. And I think that's the thing, you have to have a vision. Uh, and you have to very clearly, you know, refine that vision and be able to communicate it to other people and ultimately inspire people, uh, in that vision, whether it's fundraising or it's, it's building a team. And I think, you know, you look at, you know, people like Elon Musk, you know, I was reading his biography and when he was starting, uh, X.com, he was having people leave eBay with massive amounts of stock, you know, unvested because they saw his opportunity and he was able to convince them that this was a bigger opportunity and he was able to inspire them. And I think you need to have that as a leader to be able to inspire your team or to inspire you know, investors or the market um, to really be able to manifest you know, that vision 
And so, um, yeah, there's these little things that you can kind of look back on and say, oh yeah, you know, now, now looking back at it, I see this, these little entrepreneurial, you know, glimmers that, you know, kind of were, were peppered throughout my entire life. You use the word vision several times as we've talked today. Like, how do you go about, you know, developing that vision internally as a business and then uh, communicating it and articulating it? Like, what's your process for that? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe we should like have process documentation on it. I, I think up until now, things have been so, um, you know, frenetic and exciting that, um, you know, we haven't had that. But, you know, Theo, myself, um, I think the rest of the executive team and really every member of the inboard team we all see and buy into that vision. And I think, you know, you have to be able to be a futurist. You have to be a technologist. You have to have a passion for the market and for the opportunity to be able to lean in and really kind of see those things. I also love to talk about them. So, you know, whether I'm grabbing a sparkling water in the kitchen or, you know, we're going out uh, for a team dinner uh, or lunch, you know, we talk about these things and it's something that you can't fake. You know, you have to be incredibly passionate about it. You know, we've got, you know, company Slack channel and we've got all these different channels and we're constantly posting things about, you know, solid state batteries or automation and looking at what Boston Dynamics is doing with their latest robot. And we have a team of people that are incredibly passionate about technology and using technology to make the world a better place. And that's incredibly empowering. It's incredibly exciting. And, you know, you go through these, these periods where there's massive shifts in um, life, in uh, consciousness and transportation and economics. And as a, as a society, as a Western society, and as a species, we are undergoing that right now. Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networking, automation, robotics, autonomous driving, uh, lightweight mobility, battery density, uh, sustainable energy, um, uh, uh, biomedical advances, nanomachines. These are all technologies that are going to redefine what it means to be a human. Uh, in our lifetime, we're going to redefine what work is, you know, going from 40 hour work weeks to arguably 20, you know, how do you find value and purpose in a society if you're a person in that society? Um, and what do people do if machines and computers and robotics are doing so much? These are opportunities for us to become in, in focus way more on the humanistic, you know, aspects of, of, of our humanity. Um, and I would argue that people should be focusing on the things that machines can't do like art, like music, like having a human connection with other people. Uh, you know, unfortunately in the West, we all almost all have a, you know, don't have a reverence for the elderly. You know, we put them in nursing homes and, you know, they, they don't get, you know, attention and love from their families. Well, I think that in a society where, you know, autonomous driving has gotten rid of a lot of taxi jobs and a lot of transportation jobs, that that gives us the ability to be way more humanistic, to focus on youth education and taking care of the elderly and, and focusing on areas of our society that have really been lost because we're so frenetic and we're so, uh, everybody is so busy and taking a step back and saying, look, this is what it means to be human. Uh, and again, man, we've completely transcended the topic of inboard and, you know, lightweight electric vehicles, but they all have this, you know, stair step um, impact on manifesting the future of where we're going. And so, um, yeah, we're incredibly excited to have, you know, one small impact on that. And we're a passionate team of people who are, you know, so excited to, to, you know, help manifest this vision and to have, um, you know, an impact on the way that, you know, we as humans in this society will live, communicate, you know, work and ultimately you know, get around in the future. No, and as I said, it's a, it's an ambitious vision. Uh, we'll have some future episodes where we go through some methodologies we like to use for, um, sharing vision and, and ways to do that. But it sounds like you guys are definitely doing it right and on the right track. Ryan, if the old you could see the new you, what would the old you say? 
um, I think he'd be pretty stoked. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I've thought about that before. Uh, I don't know what he would say. Um, dude, just keep doing what you're doing and yeah, be passionate, never, never, you know, uh, sacrifice that kind of passion, uh, for anything else. And I've been pretty true to that. And I'm very fortunate to have, you know, great people in my life, like you, Mark, who've always, you know, encouraged me and supported me to, um, you know, go on these hair, hair brained adventures and ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's about the people that you have in your life and, um, uh, the way that you treat, you know, all those people and the way that they treat you and, you know, that good kind of karma and energy. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks again, Mark. Yeah. I think the old you is on the right track. We definitely need to get together and, uh, talk both business and action sports, uh, in person, get together on the beach and hang out. But Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show and, uh, we'll link to everything inboard in the show notes. So people know where to find you and get, can learn more about, uh, mobility options like the M1 and the new scooter that's soon to be released. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure. My other memories worth mentioning? A few weeks ago, my friend Aaron and I were in Denver for a meeting. And all over the city are these electric scooters that you can rent with your smartphone. Looking at them from afar, I didn't quite understand them. But a favorite saying of mine is, you must experience to believe. And after giving those scooters a try, I'm a believer. These are game changers. They're accessible and just plain fun. And since we recorded this episode with Ryan, Inboard has officially launched their glider scooter, and you can check it out on their website at www.inboardtechnology.com. My other memory? A few years back when Ryan and Theo were developing their first electric skateboard post-Kickstarter, there were, as Ryan alluded to, many challenges with batteries. And while in town here in, in Denver for an entrepreneur conference, Ryan was staying at my house and super stoked to be showing off the early prototype of what has now become the M1 skateboard. During that stay, I came home and opened my garage as I normally do, only to be greeted by thick, cloud-like, billowing black carcinogenic smoke. Apparently, the early batteries were prone to fire and explosion. None of these were ever sold to customers, so don't worry. But they figured this all out well before shipping, and this one, well, it exploded or burnt or something. I'm not sure to say what happened, but uh, I'm happy to say that the house didn't burn down, but I still do have a permanent black burn spot on my garage floor. And every now and then I'll pull something down from the garage rafters, like a sled covered in black soot that reminds me of my dear friend, Ryan Evans, in those early days at Inboard. All right, dude. Thank you. Wow, man. That was a whirlwind. <laughs> whirlwind. Woo. You like to talk, Ryan Evans. I hope there's something there for you. Yeah, I was trying to make you cry, but I couldn't couldn't dig in. <laughs> Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstories. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 